0: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about the world coming to an end. Art Carden is with me to help alleviate some of my fears about the world coming to an end, because there's there's lots to talk about in the news, and I'm a little afraid. Hashtag sarcasm. Art Carden is a senior fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He is also an associate professor of economics at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and he's a contributor to Forbes.com. Art, you are probably the most frequent guest on this podcast. Thanks for being back. Well, thank you so much for having me. So the world seems to be coming to an end. The Volkswagen Beetle is being discontinued. Human jobs are probably not going to be around mm, tomorrow. Yep. Uh, And Bernie Sanders his staff is going to like work like three hours a week now and get paid Mm -hmm. the same. And there's a whole bunch of other things like student loans are coming to an end. Like, what are we going to do about this?
1: So I'm thinking alcoholism is a really good uh, possible alternative (laughs) or a really good course of action. Um, So I'm thinking about conversations I've had about Brave New World and stuff like that. Perhaps we should sort of drug ourselves into this kind of uh, sort of contented subhumanity almost where everything will be all right because we won't feel anything.
0: That sounds terrible from the, I'm not already in that state kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) No, but seriously, um, forget about the drugs, forget about the booze. We shouldn't worry. We shouldn't worry in no small part, because in a lot of cases, these are are the natural waves of creative destruction that happen in a well-functioning market economy. So anyone counseling despair is probably trying to sell something, like some sort of herbal remedy, of some kind or some type of, you know, I don't know, alcoholic remedy, perhaps. But the things that we're observing, the things that we're observing are, first of all, not unique. Second of all, really not that big a deal. And then third of all, not worth worrying about.
0: Let's start with something that's like not all that a surprise. In fact, not a surprise at all for any libertarian observing what happened with the Bernie Sanders campaign and their campaign to get $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, so like, we chuckle at that a little bit. It's like, yeah, we saw this coming. So I don't know if you can recount for others who don't watch the news and, and didn't notice this, but basically Bernie Sanders is now going to pay his staffers at least $15 an hour because that's the minimum wage he thinks should be the minimum wage. But instead of just giving them that raise, he's going to cut their hours so they can afford it. Is that about right?
1: Yeah. Well, so this is this is really interesting because Bernie's so Bernie's labor force, so all, the, all of his campaign workers are unionized. And he's guaranteed them $15 an hour. But the problem with political campaigns is a lot of times people end up working a lot more than 40 hours a week, especially if they're salaried employees. So for a lot of his salaried people, as I understand it, their average wage has fallen below $15 an hour because they're working um, – I forget exactly what their base salary is, but it's you know it, it's supposed to be 15 bucks an hour. It falls well below that if you're working a 50-, 60-hour week, as a lot of people are going to do when they're working for political campaigns. What's interesting about this, or at least one of the things that's really interesting about this, is that everyone is obeying the laws of demand and supply. The people who are doing the work are obeying the law of supply. If they're guaranteed 15 bucks an hour, they're going to want to work a lot more. And at the same time, the campaign itself is obeying the law of demand, which is if they have to pay 15 bucks an hour, they're not going to demand as much labor as they otherwise would. And part of what makes this so remarkable is that this is a relatively well-defined setting where you have an ideologically homogeneous group of people working on a campaign all directed toward a common goal and where the standard predictions of the competitive model of the labor market wouldn't be expected to uh, to hold water, and yet here they do. We see this gap between the amount of labor people are willing to supply and the amount of labor that people are willing to demand at fifteen bucks an hour. and it's exactly what we predict in an introductory economics class.
0: Why wouldn't you expect those those laws to hold water with the ideological homogeneity?
1: well, it's not so much the ideological homogeneity well, okay, maybe just a little bit. it's that in this case you're talking about a very, very narrow labor market where if you're if you're a, a Died in the blood, Bernie bro. Then the demand side of the market for your services as a campaign organizer for a democratic socialist candidate is going to be pretty thin. So, there might be, so one could argue that there might be some monopsony type of elements. And monopsony is when there's a single buyer in a market, but there might be some monopsony type elements to this particular market. And yet, it looks like, it looks again like what we're getting. Agreeing exactly what the basic model of of the economics of the labor market that we teach in our introductory classes is describing this accurately.
0: So I can imagine to, you know, in a few years from now, you know, just this theoretical campaigner for Bernie Sanders, seeing what happened here and thinking, wait a second. There's some economic issues going on here. Maybe I should rethink what I think about demanding such a wage or enforcing that wage federally. Uh, and then I could see – and then the, you know, they, they kind of come our way on the issue even if it's not – you know they don't become full libertarians. And then I could see the other side, another person saying, oh my goodness. You mean I'm going to get paid the same salary and they're going to make me go home after 35 hours? I don't have to work 60 now? And seeing that is actually a good thing because that frees their time up to be actually productive in the economy if they go get another job.
1: True. Okay, and I think that's important. A lot of people are looking at this and saying, oh, well, clearly this is to the benefit of everybody who's who's working because they earn the same amount of money for working less. But again, they're willing to supply more hours. They're willing to supply more hours than the Bernie campaign demands at 15 bucks an hour. Yeah, sure, they're going to have more free time, perhaps, and maybe they can or maybe they will go out and do something else. But the central or the the very, very simple fact remains that by guaranteeing people 15 bucks an hour plus full benefits and all the other stuff that they're getting, they have, in, in a very, very small context, driven a wedge between the amount of work people are willing to do and the amount of work that the Bernie campaign wishes to hire.
0: So maybe they should just hire robots to do the campaigning.
1: Maybe they should. Maybe they should. And to a certain degree, to a certain degree, they have. In a lot of ways, a lot of campaigns are relying on types of artificial intelligence. It's basically what the statistical analysis of big data is. I know Bernie has – he has a special app I guess you can use. If you volunteer for his campaign – and here's a certain irony that he is willing to accept the free volunteer labor of people who are willing to work for him for literally nothing – Um, You can download the Bernie Talking Points app or whatever that tells you, helps you to figure out what sorts of things you should talk about if you're going to be an evangelist for, uh, for Bernie Sanders. So an awful lot of stuff is already being automated. The fear that robots are coming for our jobs, however, turns out to not fully be borne out in the data.
0: So, you know, thinking about robots and artificial intelligence and automation and things along those lines. You know, we could talk about the checkout register and how we do self checkout and things. I guess I would want to know, Art, when you go to the grocery store or to Costco or wherever, you might see the self checkout and you have an option to to use it. Do you do you personally use it? I personally do not
1: because I want to save the labor of the people who would otherwise be checking me out, which is completely a lie. <laughs> I I I tend to I, I tend to like using self self checkout when it looks like it's going to be faster. If Um, Going to one of the human-operated cash registers looks like it's going to be faster. I'll do that. Um, I don't have any particular opinion on – I I don't use self-checkout for the sake of using self-checkout. I don't use a human cashier for the sake of using a human cashier. I just want to get out of the store as quickly as I can and as accurately as I can. And sometimes that means self-checkout. Sometimes that means not taking self-checkout.
0: You know, it's interesting that the discussion that kind of happens online, you know, people post things on Facebook and say, I am not working for, you know, the grocery store, you know, they, I want to pay people to check me out, which that's one side of it. And the other people are kind of like, well, why wouldn't we do this? It doesn't really take away jobs on the, on the aggregate and, and in any end. And yet what you and I just, what you just said was that you, sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't, and I honestly don't know if I've ever heard anybody say, well, People are going to choose differently based on the actual situation at that moment because that's what I do. The other day I used self-checkout, and most of the time I don't. And it is about whether this is going to be more efficient or not. And I find self-checkout a little inefficient um, for me because – and the reason I find it a little inefficient is that if there's an error – it's it's basically a one-way street you customer do this exact thing in this exact order. And if not, you're going to have to stand there and look stupid waiting for the one person to six self-checkouts to come and help scan their card and then be like, so what went wrong here and all of that. Whereas if it's a human just kind of doing the work, you can have a little bit of a conversation. It just feels more natural. And until we get to that point, I don't think we're going to abolish human human checkout. Um, so anyway, why the other thing, and maybe maybe you've written about this more directly, but why aren't people thinking about the jobs created by the people who created the self-checkout machines? Because it's not immediately apparent. It's
1: it's first of all, any sort of new thing is good people are gonna look at with a little bit of suspicion. And then second, the new jobs that are being created because we're saving money and saving time and saving energy with self-checkout are kind of an order removed from what we immediately see. We see you know Sally the cashier losing her job. She or She can't work at the grocery store anymore because um, she's been replaced by a self-checkout scanner. What we don't see is all of the stuff that – all the new economic activity that takes place because we save money using self-checkout or because, because Target, say, saves money using self-checkout. I, th- I think it's, it's interesting that you mentioned people saying, I don't work for the grocery store and sort of having these, these, these loud declarations – um, if you know if that's true, then then we would also refuse to go grab a shopping cart and walk through the store picking up our items ourselves. And indeed, this is how grocery stores used to work. Um, you would tell the tell the grocer what you wanted. He would be behind the counter. He'd go get you your stuff, and then you'd go on your merry way. Self service shopping was an innovation that stuck because people preferred the combination of convenience and lower prices that came with self-serve shopping rather than having to wait on someone to go get your stuff for you. We see, I think, a similar phenomenon when we're talking about self-checkout and the replacement of human labor with technology in grocery stores, fast food restaurants, and places like that. So I don't, I don't, buy, the, I don't buy the idea that the, that the store is asking you to illegitimately do labor on their behalf. Um, the prices are lower because you're doing at least some of the work yourself. You can, if you want to, go to a full service place, but the market has sort of spoken, and full service stores like that have uh, have gone the way of the dodo, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't even know if I could find a place that's a full service. I mean, there are elements in a grocery store like the deli where you know you don't want customers. You know, just like there's no make your own pizza pizza place still, but. Um, Yeah, so I don't even know if there's a place to go for that. You know, and that Sally, that Sally who no longer needs to do cashier, the thing is, it's not like she lost her job. She's now managing six cash registers that are self-checkout and making sure they're efficient. And the other person who might have also been doing, you know, or the other five people that would be doing self-checkout are now uh, able to make the shelves look more convenient and think about more like higher level strategy in the store. I mean, I know that's not all what's happening, but that is also what is happening.
1: Well, one thing we do need to acknowledge is that even, even in the long run, there can be some people who are unambiguously worse off as a result of any type of technological change. That's something a lot of economists don't want to admit, a lot of libertarians don't want to admit. The simple, brutal fact about living in a fallen and imperfect world is that not every change is going to make all people always better off all the time. We do have to acknowledge the fact that, that there are going to be some people who are on net and in the long run worse off than they otherwise would have been. This, though, is where this is a trade-off that I think we should be willing to accept given the horn of plenty that's created by – or that creative destruction brings to us. And then furthermore, this is where I think, I think the, the church plays a very important role and where the institutions of civil society play a very important role because there are lots and lots of people, lots of sort of virtuous, hardworking people out there who through no fault of their own – end up on very, very, very hard times. Finding ways to ameliorate that short-run damage, or even the long-run damage, I think is is, is a mission toward which the church needs to needs to dedicate itself. There's some really interesting research uh, that's been done in about the last two decades, one by or a book by David Beto, a historian at the University of Alabama, and another by my, my former colleague John Murray at Rhodes College, um, looking at how these sort of institutions of civil society helped to create, first of all, sort of formal and informal insurance markets, and then second, helped to deal with things like problems when someone loses their job or, or something to that effect. And it turns out the institutions of civil society are pretty robust.
0: So I don't have to fear that human labor is going away just because that there's robots. Okay, all right, so you've settled, you've settled the, the world is not coming to an end in that way.
1: To be very, very clear, some jobs are going to go away and are going to disappear, and probably, and there will be some people, I don't know which people specifically, but some people will probably be worse off in the long run. But the idea that the robots are coming for our jobs and we're going to have mass technology induced unemployment is, I think, something that's that's a little bit at odds with the historical record. Um, it's at odds with the theory. It's at odds with the most recent evidence. And I think it's at odds with what we should reasonably be able to expect.
0: So what about student loans? I, this, is like, this is like crazy to me that people don't think about the effects of, like there, there's basically proposals that we should either cancel student debt or cancel a certain type of student debt or like, I'm sure there's all kinds of variations on this, but basically it's free college for everyone. What, I, how on earth do people not see that the, the second order effects is just going to be more borrowing and higher prices? Well, they don't have an incentive to. They don't have an incentive to notice this? They don't. They don't. I mean,
1: mm. and, and I'm you know, I'm an economist to the to the, the the marrow of my bones, and in a lot of cases, it's really easy just to to think about something that sounds nice. Yeah, people have more college or what have you, and it doesn't it doesn't materially affect you that much, such that you really don't have a strong incentive to think hard about what the second order effects or the third order effects or the fourth order effects of a policy are going to be. Um, you just hear free college help people out with their student loans that sounds nice. It may cost you a few bucks ultimately but you know it's probably not going to put you out in the street and you when you go and vote for something like that you get a warm fuzzy feeling of feeling like you're helping people even though you're probably not combined with the fact that you really have no incentive to think about it that hard because your your vote is not going to matter in that your vote is not likely to be decisive. So when I go and vote for Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and their student loan forgiveness plans, one, I've I've cast a vote that will not change the outcome of what happens, but I get to feel good about myself because Mm -hmm. I've, I've done something to help the poor, or I've done something to help what turns out to actually be the middle class, the upper middle class, and the upper class who tend to be the ones who
0: hold the bulk of student debt. Yeah, that's an interesting, could you, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because I think that's probably a good talking point for people. Like we could get lost in the like, oh, mathematically, economically, this is irresponsible to do this. But I think the intent is, oh, well, if we make college free, there's gonna be a lot of poor kids who can't afford college now get free college. But what you just said doesn't comport with that. And it might actually appeal to people wanting to make that argument. Right,
1: yeah. And, and so this is one of the things, and I say this as someone who, has been the unambiguous beneficiary of subsidies to higher education and all sorts of stuff like that. I I went to a state university on a scholarship. I I went to graduate school on part of that, I think, was funded by the National Science Foundation, I'm sure, and various other kind of government granting organizations. Um, Subsidies for higher education are direct subsidies for my services as a college professor, so my income is higher as a result of this. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm the winner, so to speak, from uh, from all of these all these policies, and I would be one of the big winners from something like student loan forgiveness. Because not, not that we have student debt, but because if we induce more people to go to college, once again, that increases demand for my labor and 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 increases my income. What a lot of people don't fully appreciate is that. The, the economic incidence of student loan forgiveness or the economic incidence of um, subsidies for higher education are on net transfers to the relatively well-to-do. If you're smart enough to succeed in college, then you're probably going to do pretty well. If you are not in a position where you're going to be able to succeed in college, then it's not really clear to me that we should be taxing you to pay the bill for someone who, in any case... Is going to have higher earnings as a result of, of having having gone to college. So it's true that there's a very high return on a college education, but almost all of this return is private, first of all. And almost all of this return accrues to people with very high human capital, basically like people who are who are going to be fit for college and who are going to who are going to do well in it. So when we, when we subsidize college, it's basically taxing everybody. And everybody's going to include people of, of relatively modest means in order to buy nice things for the, for the relatively affluent. And I, I don't think there's a there, – there's no compelling theory of taxation that tells me we should be taxing poor people to buy stuff for rich people.
0: That seems to grind against the gears of those who want to uh, help the poor. So oh, that, that would be yeah. a good good thing to bring up. Yeah. So what does the – so the practical question is this. We either have students or people who are going to be students uh, – college and higher education students listening or a, a parents who – their kids are going to someday need education beyond high school or some so- possibly need education beyond high school. Uh, what do they do? They can't change the incentive structure, and they could see this as a terrible thing. But like, hey, I mean, what am I supposed to do with the hand I've been dealt? It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be free for me to go, or it's going to be subsidized or whatever. I mean – how purist can we be? Do we just simply refuse to do this? Do we go jump on board with Praxis, with Isaac Morehouse? I mean, what's, what does a student do if they need to be a student?
1: Well, so that's a really, uh, part, of, part of what makes us really, really fascinating is thinking, first of all, but the way that something like student loan cancellation, I don't want to say forgiveness, because you're using taxpayer money to pay other people's bills, basically. One of the things that makes it so fascinating is thinking about how it affects people's incentives and how it affects people's longer-term planning. So, um, yeah, at at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we can't all sort of go to Galt's Gulch. Um, it's sort of a nice fantasy, but for almost everybody, you've got to live your life. You're going to drive on a road that's paid for by the government. You're probably going to go to a school that's paid for by the government in some form or fashion. And in this case, you're probably going to end up borrowing money that may be paid back by the government. When I think about the incentives people face with respect to how they finance higher education, the probability that the government will cancel all this debt makes, at least for some people, at the margin, borrowing money to finance, say, a boutique degree in, I don't know, something that says, has studies in the title or the performing arts or something like that, a more attractive proposition. So we have so we have three kids. Or the day that we're actually recording this, our oldest turn, turns 11. Our daughter is nine and our younger son is seven. So we're going to be looking at financing college, you know, something you know, within the next decade. If student loan forgiveness or student loan cancellation is a real possibility, then that reduces our incentive to seek scholarships. That reduces our incentive to pay for any of college out of pocket. because if we bar if we load up on student debt, then, eventually that may end up being canceled that becomes that becomes a gamble that's a little bit more reasonable it's not entirely reasonable necessarily but it's a little bit more reasonable than it would be if we knew for a fact that this debt would never ever 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 be canceled so in a sense in a sense part of this debate concerns policies that might encourage people to behave badly okay not Not in the sense that they're going to like twirl their mustaches and and do bad, evil, terrible things, but they're going to, they have an incentive to make less responsible decisions than they otherwise would if they are going to be on the hook for literally everything. Hey, podcast listeners, since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book. And every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to to calltofreedombook.com.
0: One of the things in an article you wrote about student loans is, I'm just going to do a quote here, and I I think it was interesting that you draw on the self-serving nature of humans. Given our psychological proclivities and our tendencies to be self-serving, it can be pretty easy to convince ourselves that we're actually doing everyone a favor. And what's interesting about that is you turn the accusation of self-interest against people like you and me who are libertarians and say that we should be, you know, we're kind of methodological individualists and we're people accuse us of being too self-serving and too selfish or not chastising people for being self-serving or selfish or self-interested, whatever. And- you basically turn that upside down and say, wait a second, it's pretty self-serving for you to think you're going to be doing everyone else a favor. Right. Well, so there, so this is a really
1: interesting, it's a really interesting point and an interesting fact about human psychology that I've been reading about and thinking about for a while. We're we're extremely good at telling self-serving stories. And I have to I really have to watch out for this in myself. I have to, I spend a lot of time trying to monitor this in my kids, mm. for example. Um <laughs> I see this a lot frankly in in friends and people that I respect and I mean it's 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 a it's a fundamental feature of fallen humanity that in some sense we we idolize ourselves and are willing and able to tell ourselves very flattering stories about what we're doing. It's easy in retrospect to rationalize just about any choice that we make. So someone who um, so let's, let's pick a, pick a, a major – pick a, a field of study that's likely to have relatively low earnings. So getting a graduate degree in puppetry, for example, um, it, which was actually – this was the sympathetic story that the nation tried to tell several years ago. Um, getting a master's degree in puppetry. You know, you, you, it's really easy to tell yourself you're sacrificing the higher earnings, say, that you could get in some other field to convey the to convey onto the public this benefit of a better puppetry or something like that. And, that and and again basically what what you're doing is is you're you're getting other people to pay for your hobby and expecting them to thank you for it in a sense i've tried to be i've tried to be very very clear with myself that given that i absolutely love what i do i shouldn't expect people to Thank me for foregoing the higher earnings I could get on Wall Street or something like that, given that in a lot of cases, either directly or indirectly, there are many ways in which taxpayers are footing the bill. There's a really interesting paper. It's published about ten years ago by um, the economist Brian Kaplan and Scott Bollier, in which they they look at the incentives that the welfare state creates and asks how those incentives interact with a lot of the insights that we have from behavioral economics. And when, when you look at this sort of litany of human cognitive and spiritual failings, these are almost all exacerbated in a setting in which we are we are less responsible for our own actions than a setting in which we are more responsible for our own actions. So if you, if you consider these sort of self-serving biases, our, our ability to tell ourselves really nice stories about how allegedly noble we are, then – this should be this should this should be a caution this should this should cause us to think much more critically about whether subsidizing this thing or subsidizing that thing is a is a good idea
0: so i want to switch gears to another topic and i there was an inadvertent pun there and you'll see that in a moment you'll hear that in a moment All right. I guess. so growing up one of the games that i played while on road trips was when we saw a volkswagen beetle uh, we would say Punch Bug or Slug Bug or something like that. M- the current iteration that my children play is Slugbug. So are they going to be able to play that with their kids someday? Because apparently the Volkswagen Beetle is going out of production and, I mean, road trips will be terrible in the future. Yes.
1: Um, apparently, yeah. So the the Beetle is again going out of production. This isn't the first time this has happened. But yeah, Volkswagen is discontinuing the iconic Volkswagen Beetle. Um, now then, I, I too have, as, as we mentioned, I have small kids, and, and they're, they're pretty creative when it, come up, when it comes to coming up with reasons to punch one another, so they'll probably just be able to substitute a different car. I, I'm, not really that, I'm not really that concerned about you know, my, my kids, for example, lacking opportunities to beat each other up, but yeah, there is, there is kind of a sense in which we, we lose something important with the discontinuation of, of this iconic car. But when we think about who's really calling the tune in a market economy, it's not some sort of dictator somewhere. It's not even Volkswagen executives sort of, again, twirling their sinister mustaches and saying, we're going to destroy, ironically, given that it's a German company, this piece of the American experience, <laughs> which is playing slug bug with your, with your brothers and sisters on long road trips. It's consumers. They are they're saying they're voting with their dollars against the Beetle and in favor of a lot of alternatives. So, for example, I think if if I remember correctly, Volkswagen is planning to really ramp up production of one of their electric vehicles, and therefore they're they're moving the production. And again, to heap irony upon irony, they're they're closing down production of their of their <laughs> their German car in Mexico that is part is kind of an American icon. They're they're closing down their their Mexican production facility in order to substitute to a different kind of vehicle. And when we look at this, it's not some awful, terrible bit of Americana that's being destroyed. Rather, it's it's consumers voting with their hard-earned money for something other than the Volkswagen Beetle. And that is something that I, I, don't, I don't see that we should have any problem with.
0: So this is sort of creative destruction yeah, you know, like happening before our eyes because Absolutely. I mean, while on the one hand it's it's iconic and you know even if we if it's not the kind of car for you or me uh you know it is for other people and it's kind of a cool thing to see on the road or whatever and you know what I'm not going to mourn that in 40 years you know, I only see one every couple months, you know, because some some guy has an antique that was made in two thousand and five, uh, or whatever. Cause I mean, people are gonna hold on to these for longer. Uh, but you know, this is creative destruction at, at work. Should I invest in VW ownership and like hope hope the price goes up so that I can like sell it in fifteen years? I mean, is that something that uh, uh is that good economic advice? Uh no, it's
1: not. And I'm gonna say for, for a, a couple of different reasons. First yeah, a VW. First, a car is it's a it's a, you know, it's an asset that deteriorates, so it's it's difficult to maintain. Second, as I understand the evidence on collectibles, they actually do tend to have a lower rate of return than sort of more straight up financial assets. One of the reasons for that is because collectibles are fun. You, know, if you hang a painting on your wall, you've got this beautiful painting. Yeah, that's a source of of happiness and a source of of what economists call utility. So the financial return on something like a Volkswagen Beetle is probably not going to be not going to be that great. Third, cars are pretty easy to steal, and fourth, to kind of to kind of bring it back full circle, there are going to be lots and lots of hidden costs associated with ownership of a VW Bug that you're not going to get that you're not going to have to incur if you just put the money in a mutual fund. So while I, I'm not a I'm not a certified financial planner. Um, and I'm really not sure, I, I honestly don't know the legal status of offering this advice on a podcast, but any <laughs> listeners, if you really, really, really love cars, then by all means buy one. If you, if, if this is, if, if you're a car guy or a car girl and you treasure these types of vehicles, sure. If you're just looking for a place to park some money, um, in anticipation of a higher return, then I would say, put it on, just put it on a stock market mutual fund and forget it.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's funny that we even have to caveat that this is not a uh, given advice, given the tongue in cheek nature of this part of the conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. just in case it's not clear that one listener out there, <laughs> <laughs> this is not a, an advice on financial investment. So talk to someone who is a certified or I don't even care if they're certified, but talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about directly about yeah. investing in Volkswagen bug ownership. So, Art, we, talk, we started off with talking about alcoholism as the solution to things. Um, so we're not going to advocate alcoholism either, just for the, rest, <laughs> right. yeah, for yeah, exactly, the record. Exactly. But if somebody wanted to responsibly drink alcohol or beverages of similar kinds, where in the world would they want to do that?
1: They would not want to go to a communist country. They'd want to stay in the United States. They'd want to stay in Western Europe. They'd want to stay in Australia or New Zealand. they want to even stay in a liberalizing economy like like China. Um, Really interesting book that was just released today. Uh, Today, I think. Today or yesterday. um, By our friends Bob Lawson and Ben Powell called Socialism Sucks. Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World. Explains in a very, very on-the-ground way why exactly it is that socialism is inferior to capitalism or whatever you want to call it in the West. Um, so yeah, I would not, again, this, this is not professional advice advocating <laughs> either substance abuse you know, or even drinking for travel. Um, <laughs> or but, even going to communist countries. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or even going to communist countries. Actually, we will advise
0: you to not do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 Probably that's probably a bad idea. In fact, so so I, I've known the authors Bob Lawson and Ben Powell for a long time. they're They're both really fun and uh, both zealous advocates of the free market. And they've done a lot of sort of the standard um, dry academic study that economists are so infamous for. And in in this book, which again, I think is, is, is really interesting. They um, say, let's actually look on the ground at what day-to-day life is like in Venezuela and China, and let's look across the river into North Korea. Apparently, they promised their wives that they wouldn't end up in prison or dead, so they didn't actually go into North Korea. But uh, they go around the world and ask, okay, in these communist and former communist countries, what's it like? And as people who, who enjoy a drink they try to filter this to a certain degree through alcohol availability. And they find they get to Venezuela and there's literally no beer because the Venezuelan government did not allocate enough foreign exchange to the beer company, which meant that the beer company couldn't buy the malted barley that they needed. They go to Cuba. There are literally two kinds of beer in Cuba. They stay in a hotel that's effectively rotten. Um, When you contrast that with... The selection of beer and the selection of, of drinks that's available in, say, a place like the United States, there's really no comparison. So a lot of what they're doing is they're, they're going through the unfree world, eating, drinking, and uh, having a good, a good time and discovering that the food and beverage and the good times are a lot better in uh, the Western world or a lot better in the quote-unquote capitalist world than they are in the communist world or in the socialist world.
0: So the moral of this whole podcast episode would be, if you're going to enjoy the end of the world, do it where there's free markets.
1: Yeah, if you're, good, if you're going to enjoy the end of the world, do it where the world isn't likely to end, actually. And that's a, that would be in a country with a lot of economic freedom, like the United States or Australia, France, the UK, Germany, you name it. Sweden, Denmark, Norway. These are the places where you'd want to spend the apocalypse.
0: All right, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for being on our podcast. Okay, thank you for having me. So there's an app that tells a Bernie supporter what to say. I think so. I think so. I, I just well, that kind of takes the it. intelligence out of the artificial intelligence, then, wouldn't it? Well, okay, that's being well, okay, a little the, on the mean okay, side. Okay, okay, but, okay. Sorry, okay that's, to get my yeah, that's, that's, that's
1: kind. Of, that's kind of. That's kind of mean. But um, <laughs> it's it is to to the to the extent that the, that these are that these are intelligent things to say, or that, that we're trying to figure out what message resonates with people. Then yeah, it absolutely is a it, it absolutely is an, an application of artificial intelligence to the campaign problem. Parenthetically, part of what makes this such a naughty issue and what makes um, kind of being an economist or being a libertarian economist and a libertarian Christian kind of a naughty issue is you look at the stuff that, that Sanders says and the AOC says about um, things like minimum wages and whatnot, and, and it, just, it just looks absurd. But at the same time, they're also very much on the side of increasing immigration and presumably reducing military adventurism abroad. So it's not immediately clear to me that, that on net we wouldn't be better off with crappier labor market regulations, say, and a higher minimum wage coupled with fewer wars or something like that. But that's a digression.
0: Yeah. Yeah.